We acknowledge the Wadjuk people and the wider Noongar community on whose country uh, we conduct our ceremonies uh, and meditate uh, tonight. May the voice of the butcher be present in uh, wor our words and activities uh, tonight. Tonight we take up the story of the Buddha's uh, enlightenment. Shakyamuni sees the morning star. Robert Aitken said, Shakyamuni Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, I and all beings have at this moment attained the way. What did he realise? Please sit comfortably. <coughs> the story of Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree is the foundation story of uh, the Zen tradition and uh, in its various forms of uh, a great number of Buddhist traditions. Probably all of them, I suspect. Um, it's a great story providing us with the deepest encouragement to awaken uh, to our true nature, uh, to confirm who we truly are, um, and to walk the way into our lives. How to take uh, this story, which is largely uh, mythological, uh, not seeking the literal um, here, but archetypal uh, truths. How to take it, it's good to take it personally. You know, it, Western Zen is is wonderful in its inclusiveness, um, but uh, the dirty secret is that we don't get to sit uh, enough. Um, I think was this story is an encouragement to sit, uh, to become, uh, to find uh, the moments in the day. Uh, to find the uh, retreats and uh, sasengais and sishins and all of those opportunities uh, and to plunge uh, right in there. So in tonight's story we would normally and properly focus on Shakyamuni Buddha uh, but let's consider for a moment that intrepid star and her part in this story. Venus is the brightest object in our sky outside of the sun and the moon and is still visible in the dawn sky as the sun rises. At the breaking of dawn, she's the last star 
to disappear into its glory. The planet Venus is both the morning star and the evening star, the light and the dark, male and female, differentiation and emptiness and their intimate interpenetration. What a burden for an insignificant planet in the vastness of the universe. So in that moment of awakening uh, under the Bodhi tree on the dawn of the 49th day, uh, what did Shakyamuni Buddha realise? What was it that had him sweepingly exclaim that he and all beings, including you and me, in that instant had attained the way? So let's explore a little bit uh, the, the stories behind this. Uh, the way is experiential and it's not about clinging to literal truths. It engages the depths of who we truly are, which are in the same breath uh, depths of the universe. So here's a found, the foundational story. Um, of the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, it's adapted from the Buddha and his Dharma by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Once upon a time, or some two and a half thousand years ago, Prince Siddhartha was born into the noble family of the Shakya clan at Kapilavastu, located in the ancient Shakya kingdom, which is today part of Nepal. It was foretold that Prince Siddhartha would be a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher. His father, understandably, and, is, and as is the way with dads, decided that he should be a great ruler, and in the same breath, undoubtedly, his successor. As a royal youth, Prince Siddhartha was raised in luxury. His father built for him three palaces, one for each season of the year, and there he enjoyed himself in the company of his friends. At the age of 16, he married his cousin, a beautiful princess named Yasodhara, and they lived a contented life in the Shakyan, uh, yeah, Shakyan capital, Kapilivastu, <coughs> living the life, as we say. During this time, he was probably trained in the martial arts and the skills of statecraft. It seems that the genie that could grant an infinity of wishes was at his command. However, when he reached his late twenties, the prince became increasingly introspective. What troubled him were questions concerning the purpose and meaning of life. Is the goal of our existence the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, the achievement of wealth and status, the exercise of power? Is that all there is? Uh, or is there something beyond these that is inherently more real and fulfilling? Such questions obsessed him. He escapes the palace or palaces where he's been walled up by his father 
to protect him from the realities of the world and life in it. Uh, on his surreptitious to the world outside, uh, he and the charioteer, his charioteer used to escape together, um, he encounters an old person, a sick person and a corpse. Old age, sickness and death. Uh, the core of suffering, uh, at least for humanity. After meeting an old person, a sick person, a dead person, Shakyamuni finally encounters a monk and glimpses his destiny in that meeting. From these four signs he intuits, he knows in his deepest being what he must do. At such moments we know in our heart, we know overwhelmingly what we must do. Um, each one of us has such moments in our lives, surely. Uh, turning points. Yeah, it's been said that Shakyamuni's Khan was, uh, well, uh, why do we suffer? Is there liberation from suffering? And if there is, what is that liberation? In terms of of suffering, uh, suffering arises because we cling to what is passing away. Um, which is the traditional Theravadan account. I think this is Dogen, he's, uh, but it draws on traditions that, that exist long before him. There are always the eight kinds of suffering, birth, old age, sickness, death, separation from the beloved, union with the hated, frustrations, and those sufferings caused by clinging to the five skandhas to form sensation, perception, mental reaction, and consciousness, out of which we form the notion of a self, an enduring self. Uh, the description goes on, not to mention the fact that life arises and perishes instantaneously from moment to moment and does not abide at all. So suffering is deeply entangled with impermanence. And in terms of traditional wisdom, we suffer because we cling to what is impermanent. Clinging and craving characterizes counts of suffering as they appear in Theravada. In Mahayana, it tends to be uh, ignorance and delusion is the way that it gets framed. These are not mutually exclusive, but uh, the emphasis goes that way. So in terms of the Mahayana, uh, we suffer because we are ignorant of the nature of reality 
and our relation to it. In particular, we suffer because we are caught up in dualistic conceptions of self and other. This is classically framed, uh, as Haku and Yasutani put it, um, <clears throat> uh, I am in here and you are out there. How about the reverse? I am out there and... Uh, I, am, I am out there, you are in here. It's nice to play. That's the spirit of the Mahayana. Good to dance. And Nisargadatta said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Another way. Inherently, we each and all share in the Buddha's enlightenment, which at the deepest level is also our, our own. However, the tangled forest of our delusions and attachments regarding who we are and our relation to the world shuts us off from that vastness. So our suffering arises from our ignorance regarding the nature of reality and our relation to it. And if this is different from the delusions and attachments that spring from our ignorance. You know, it's wonderful because uh, another way of expressing this, Shakyamuni says, now I see that uh, all beings are this one. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from seeing it. So it is like, it's not like it's out of reach of ordinary humanity or anything like that. It's just that, that we are clouded in a sense, delusions, attachments. Um, and with sitting and with walking the way, uh, that, those clouds are clear. Then they come back and then they clear and we get a glimpse and then we get to see some more of it. But it's not sort of some kind of metaphysical impossibility that's simply the province of the Buddha, for instance, and that it's shared, it's in common. And that's the marvellous thing about it. We all share in it as it. So, investigating his profound question, Shakyamuni did what he had to do and entered uh, his quest for the truth. He started with a study of the philosophies and meditation systems of his day. Leaving behind his home and family, he headed south for Magadha, in whose environs small groups of seekers were quietly pursuing their quest for spiritual illumination usually under the guidance of a guru. At that time, Northern India could boast a number of accomplished masters famous for their philosophical systems and achievements in meditation. He sought out two of the most eminent, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. 
From them he learned systems of meditation, which, from the descriptions in the text, seem to have been forerunners of Raja Yoga. Shakyamuni mastered their teachings and systems of meditation, but although he reached exalted levels of concentration, or samadhi, he found these teachings insufficient, for they did not lead to the goal he was seeking. A release from the sufferings of sentient existence. So, from this perspective, he was prince of philosophers and prince of meditators, um, but it wasn't enough. So, this is stage one of this archetypal account of mastering, uh, of entering the way, really. Mastering techniques. Uh, learning philosophy, reading, studying. Uh, so stage two, uh, he spent six years with a group of ascetics uh, and practices the most extreme austerities. Uh, this is uh, cutting off desire. In particular, it seems cutting off the desire for food. Um, the most extreme uh, asceticism. He almost dies as a result of this. Uh, out of this near catastrophe comes the middle way. Uh, what is called the middle way. Avoiding the extremes of sensual indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. He had experienced both extremes, the first as a prince and the latter as an ascetic, and in terms of his quest, he knew they were ultimately dead ends. Richest to rags is the trajectory here. He goes off to the local rubbish dump, uh, chooses some rags, uh, dyes them, and that becomes uh, his becoming a monk. So riches to rag, but imagine the opposite. Um, imagine getting uh, more wealthy, uh, more powerful, um, developing deep spirituality um, and preaching uh, from there, from that kind of perspective. Um, it feels strange. Uh, but Shakyamuni's engagement with uh, emperors, uh, kings, rulers is very interesting because when uh, his group, when his sangha are formed, it needed protection. Uh, this involved um, political engagement uh, with um, rulers, even getting direct uh, protection in many cases. Um, Shakyamuni, or as the Buddha, um, was called on for his advice. And in one very touching example, uh, the king uh, seeks his advice about whether he should uh, invade a neighbouring kingdom or go to war with them. The Buddha counsels against it, but of course he is overruled and he sits at the side of the road and watches the troops uh, march. 
the relationship with power uh, complex and difficult, and, but also necessary in the formation of the early Sangha. The middle way has several senses. It's a way between extremes, uh, as it's sometimes put, getting our lives into tune like getting a guitar string into tune. How angry do we need to get? Do we need to get angry at all? Is this an occasion we should stand on our dignity or should we let go of this? On the other hand, Dogen says, the middle way is in fact a radical leaping clear of the one and the many. Uh, no question of averages uh, here. It's radical. In terms of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, the middle way is expressed by I am because you are you are because this is this is because and these becauses are not causal at all but uh, there is no central I'm trying to find the language here there's no inherent self to any of this You are because, listen. So Shakyamuni gave up his practice of austerities and resumed taking nutritious food. The story goes that a girl from the village, whose name was Sujata, discovering him at the point of death, gave him milk and rice to revive him and continued doing this until his strength returned. At the same time, five, the five other ascetics who'd been living in attendance on him, hoping that when he attained enlightenment, he would serve as their guide. Um, but when they saw him partake of substantial meals, they became disgusted with him and left him, thinking the princely ascetic had given up his exertion and reverted to a life of luxury. Thus restored and solitary, he undertook to awaken, to find liberation. He got support from the village kids. Suchata, who, had con who continued to feed him, and Svasti, the buffalo boy who brought him fresh kusa grass to sit on. That's an early form of our zafu. Shakyamuni vowed not to rise until he had awakened. 49 days and nights of hard sitting, during which time he experienced the temptations of Mara. Sexual enticements, the enticements of great power. Surely all, all this stuff was uh, all this was old stuff for him. 
but you know, we're all vulnerable. In response uh, to Maya's uh, about his right to be sitting under the Bodhi tree, Shakyamuni um, uh, just touched earth. Didn't sort of say, well, I've got a perfect right to be here. If, if I want to be here, I can be here. Just. On the final night, as dusk became darkness, he entered into deeper and deeper stages of meditation until his mind was perfectly calm and composed. Then the records tell us in the first watch of the night, he directed his concentrated mind to the recollection of his previous lives. Gradually there unfolded before his inner vision his experiences of many past births, even during many cosmic eons. In the middle watch of the night, he developed the divine eye by which he could see beings passing away and being reborn in accord with their karma. You know, one of the profound changes uh, with Buddhism coming west has been that very quietly uh, the, the notion of past lives uh, has largely disappeared. I mean, a system uh, transcendental reality of uh, Asian Buddhism, which has been there for centuries since the Buddha, is just for the most part, in certainly in Theravada and to, in Zen, um, uh, largely been just put to one side. So it's become much more focused as a, a this life uh, concern. It's a very interesting question as to what kind of difference this really makes. In the last watch of the night, Shakyamuni penetrated the deepest truths of existence, the most basic laws of reality, and thereby removed from his mind the subtlest fails of ignorance. And then at dawn, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. Now I see that all beings are this one. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from realising it. So what did he realise? He doesn't say um, now I now I realise that all beings are me. Tathagata, one who does not come and go. The one who comes thus, or the one who does not come and go. Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata.
He doesn't say uh, all beings, I am all beings either. Um, there is no agency here. Uh, I am all beings. This may be true in its way, but um, it gives a sense of agency. All beings are this. All beings are this. For each of you. It's not your agency. For several weeks, the newly awakened Buddha remained in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, contemplating from different angles the Dharma, the truth he had discovered. Then he came to a new crossroad. Was he to teach? Was he to try and share his realization with others? Or should he instead remain quietly in the forest, enjoying the bliss of liberation alone? Well, the answer to that was 48 years of walking the back roads of India for the sake of those with a little dust in their eyes. So what do we learn? from this exemplary story. Stickability, determination, devotion, keeping on, keeping right on, keeping on regardless. Zen is a regardless practice. We call this Buddha's Enlightenment Day but actually it's yours. So who or what are you exactly right 